The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. I realized I've been using the words envy and jealousy interchangeably when there's actually a fine but stark difference between them. Jealousy is about fear. Jealousy is anxiety about losing what you have, that nervous feeling that someone is out for your spot. Envy, on the other hand, is about desire. Envy is wanting what you don't yet have. It's daydreaming and striving and keeping up with the Joneses. But the primary difference, I would say, is that these are two radically different feelings. Jealousy is corrosive and painful, and it drives you absolutely up a wall. Envy, on the other hand, is almost fun. I mean, I feel like what my therapist would tell you is that my obsession with comparison is, like, not good for my life. (laughs) But I also feel like it's a strong part of, unfortunately, my personality. For writer Evie Ebert, envy is a byproduct of ambition. I had kind of built my life around this idea that um, this version of me in the present is not the real me. This The real me is this, like, hologram of myself that I'm pursuing where things work out the way that I want them to, and I'm better, and I'm smarter, and I'm more successful, and I'm getting there. And then it was sort of like the pandemic hit an extremely harsh pause button on everyone's life. And it was like, no, the what you have right now is all that there is. There's no forward movement. We had to remind ourselves to be happy to be alive and lucky if we're in good health, grateful for what we have right where we are. But like, that's hard to sustain. Aspiration without opportunity ferments to envy. Of course, I could be much worse off, but I was like green with envy about people whose homes are much larger, who were living in better climates, maybe who had outdoor pools. And I had a real inclination to kind of judge myself for becoming obsessed with who has it better, basically. And so I just was like, no, this is part of my my self-care practice is allowing myself to be annoyed by people. But then Evie realized that other people were probably allowing themselves to be annoyed at her. Evie's essay in the cut is titled, Do You Hate Me for My Lawn? She has a lawn. It feels extremely luxurious. Like being able to open the front door and send my four-year-old out, I feel like Marie Antoinette, basically. For a while, it felt like everything and anything was a luxury. Showing off your sourdough bread meant you had groceries. Joking about Zoom conferences meant you had a job. Complaining about your kids meant you had human contact. You can't win at this. (laughs) I mean, some people are having an especially hard time, but nobody's having fun. (laughs) And then, in the midst of pointing our fingers at each other and tossing our envy around our immediate circle, we pricked our ears up, and we heard a sound. A horrible sound. Imagine there's no heaven. The siren song of extremely wealthy celebrities. Easy if you try. We rose up and grabbed our envy, our proverbial pitchforks, and we marched to the photographs of Drake's weirdly empty hotel lobby of a mansion. We swarmed to pick apart the celebrity bookshelves on Zoom. We roundly mocked the rich and famous's insistence that we're all in this together. It was so overtly tone deaf. Our envy was almost delicious. I'm having this resentment and you're having it too. And it's it's something that we're kind of sharing. I feel like it's part of the shared 
pandemic experience. It was suddenly like we were truly all in this together. Freud talks about this in Civilization and Its Discontents, that a cohesive society unites around a common enemy, an outgroup. There are lots of scary and unfortunate examples of the groups America has ostracized, but the rich and famous are not among them because it's so much more complicated than pure animosity. If they're so awful and they're so ridiculous and they're so repugnant, why, why does Kim Kardashian have like a zillion Instagram followers? Molly Young is the literary critic for New York Magazine, and she was wondering why we want to keep looking at rich people for envy or fantasy or whatever we turn to them for. I mean, what's interesting about the quarantine is you started seeing a, a lot of people turn against celebrities, right? Like Ellen complaining that quarantining and her gigantic house made her feel like she was in prison or whatever. And finally, people are starting to kind of examine the purpose that these celebrities are serving in our lives. And you have to examine why we're interested in them in the first place. And during the, oh, fifth, sixth week of lockdown, Molly started to get really into examining why we are so interested in looking at the lives of rich people. Not your run-of-the-mill social media influencers, but like the people with pass-it-down money and trust funds and assets. And that sort of led me down a rabbit hole of researching uh, rich people throughout history and the silly things that they do. She wrote a richly researched zine called The Things They Fancied. Throughout history, rich people have always been offensive and insulting and funny and ridiculous and sort of worthy of, of mockery. I kept finding myself being drawn to stories and, and journal articles about the insane, frivolous um, habits of wealthy people. And one of them that I talk a little bit about in the zine is pineapple. In 18th century Europe, pineapples were just like the it thing. They were wildly expensive because if you wanted one, you had to sponsor someone to sail to the new world to get it for you. Strictly because of that, it was like the, the best thing ever, right? It was like the greatest fruit. Generally, sure, pineapples taste pretty great, but consider, if you will, that the 1700s pineapple had to spend around two months at sea. And it was probably partly fermented, and it might have been a little bit fuzzy with mold. Like, this was not a pineapple that was at its prime. Another option was that you could rent one of these withered pineapples for a dinner party. Not to eat, just to display. And then when the dinner party was over, you would ret return the pineapple, and it would kind of go to the next the next person who wanted to rent it for their dinner party. And this would continue until the pineapple itself was like mushy and rotten. And then they'd have to chuck it and get a fresh pineapple to start making the rounds of the dinner parties. I mean, it's kind of pathetic, but not as sad as the one-time trend for domesticated squirrels. Pet squirrels were this, this weird fad in early America, specifically with Southern plantation wives whose husbands or sons would either buy or capture wild young squirrels for these women, which, you know, they're not very tame. Like, they run around, they hide things, they eat clothing. They're not, like, the best domesticated pet. But so these women would kind of convince themselves that um, a squirrel was an appropriate companion. And, and there's just something so sad about, so sad and also ghastly about the idea of these isolated wives, you know, miles and miles and miles from what they considered civilization, but actually, of course, surrounded by humans, by slaves whose humanity they refused to recognize, and having them instead turn to a freaking squirrel for love and companionship is just, 
I can't think of, of a more piquant anecdote. Ah, but you hear that? In Molly's voice? Nestled within that mockery, there is something that sounds like sympathy. And I feel it too, even though, why would I feel any shred of sympathy for these poor little rich women who enslaved other people? Why are there movies and musicals about Marie Antoinette and Ava Perone and Imelda Marcos and Princess Anastasia that are literally like, yes, queen, when their subjects were starving? Rich people get to be these fun, fluffy, tragicomic antiheroes, and we kind of love to hate them and hate to love them. I mean, if you if you judge by reality TV, if you judge by the number of Bravo shows there are, <laughs> you know, there are ever-expanding universe of Real Housewives, this is seems to be what people want, right? Just look at the book sales and ticket sales of Crazy Rich Asians. Hi, I'm Kevin Kwan. I'm the author of Crazy Rich Asians. After the break, Kevin Kwan and I try to figure out why we want to keep looking at rich people and why we haven't eaten them yet. The thing I love about Kevin Kwan's writing is that he is definitely lampooning rich people. He's name-dropping all these brands and highlighting all these secret customs and concerns that seem severed from reality. But still, at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm looking at issues of identity and racism. I'm really just trying to show humans. These are humans, you know, in my books that tend to have larger bank accounts. But their problems, their level of anxiety, their issues are, are as important to them as our issues are to us. So I have a lot of sympathy for all my characters— even the snobs. You just want all of Kevin's characters to be happy somehow. Even as they are tossing around grotesque sums of money and flying on private planes with bowling alleys in them. And some of this is because Kevin Kwan is a great writer. But more generally, why are we so ready to sympathize with rich people? Why is it easier to digest stories, even the ones about identity and racism, when they're happening at the very top? I have a few pet theories about this. One is that Americans have been spoon-fed this idea that anyone with enough hard work and bootstrapping could join the ranks of the wealthy. So there's this eagerness to identify with rich people because we, too, are all just potential future millionaires. But then again, the sentiment is not uniquely American. People from the beginning of time have been fascinated by the wealthy and the privileged. Looking at it from a literary standpoint, Machiavelli, Jane Austen, Edith Wharton— the list is long, you know, and the mass public, I think, really enjoys reading about these people because I think it, number one, it humanizes them. It makes them also all too real in a way where normal people, you know, those of us that are not part of the 1%, can almost sort of live vicariously and feel sorry for them. Wealth has that raw entertainment value. Poverty creates problems that are cyclical and Sisyphusian and deadening. Rich people characters have... Rich people problems because, you know, they have problems. And it's the complexities of the very, very rich. Yeah, we're not going to lose sleep over them. But um, you can see that more money causes a whole set of new problems for these people. The other thing is that we can armchair analyze those problems in a way that would be inappropriate with anyone else. Like... It would be mean and also dumb to try to assess why a character who can't pay rent is unhappy. But 
in watching shows like Succession or Schitt's Creek or Real Housewives, we're almost looking at rich people the way ancient Greeks looked at the gods. They're revered and they're worshipped, even as we know that Hera is jealous and Athena is competitive and Aphrodite is vain. They're more powerful than us, but we get to feel superior to them as we understand the ins and outs of their personalities. But Kevin Kwan was really worried that 2020 might be the end of that, that we might be done with rich people problems. I've been writing this book for a while, and we were aiming for a summer 2020 release, but we didn't think it was going to be <laughs> this summer. In June, Kevin Kwan released his newest book called Sex and Vanity. It's about wealthy people traveling to Capri oh, wow, huh? for a massive, extravagant wedding. <laughs> okay. And yes, I had many, many angst-filled conversations with my publishers. I really wanted to move it and delay the publication by a year or more, you know, as need be. But they convinced me that um, they really felt like this was the time to release it, that people are looking for an escape. How, how has the reception been? How do, you, how do you feel about it? It has been overwhelmingly positive, I have to say. It's just, for, for a lot of people, such a relief to read something that is fun, that takes you someplace very exotic. People are looking for an escape. People are looking to laugh. People are looking for moments of joy. And if I can be part of that, you know, why not? I mean, is that what this what what writing about wealthy people is for you? Is that an escape? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, not really. <laughs> it's an immersion, you know. And I mean, for me, it's it's just you know when I wrote Crazy Rich Asians, I was writing about a world I knew, right? I was bringing to life the world of my childhood. I was bringing to life the world of Asia that I know when I travel to Asia. At the end of the day, I'm an observer. You know, I just observe these worlds and just try to depict them as authentically as I can. So every dress, every room, every restaurant, every space they're in has to exist in some form of reality for me before I can write about it. You know, in this new book, we go to a lot of these exclusive country clubs on the Eastern Seaboard. We go to Tea and Sympathy down in the West Village. Everything is real. Every restaurant, every description in Capri is real. You can't make this stuff up. That's the thing. It's not fantasy. That parallel world is actually out there, and it hasn't gone away because of COVID. Between March and July of this year, while 40 million Americans filed for unemployment, the total wealth of American billionaires rose an average of $42 billion a week. This is the world of, of these characters that I write about. And like it or not, they exist, you know, and there still is this world of people who are still spending. They're trapped at home and there is a lot of pent up frustration amongst people that you feel like, you know, they've made this much money, but they can't spend it like they used to. So they're going to spend it anyway. And it's almost like a sort of up yours to the disease. Because for a lot of people, especially in, in this world of privilege, shopping is therapy. And if they can't have their fix physically, they're going to do it virtually. The frightening thing is the wealth class in the world, you know, worldwide, is growing by leaps and bounds. And the middle class in America is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. But on both ends, you have the underprivileged who are growing in numbers and the one percenters who are growing in numbers. So you see that in stark relief. The question is, do we want to see that stark relief? Even as the public outwardly mocked celebrities and rich people these last few months, we must ask ourselves, 
Do we love to see it? That's kind of one fascinating aspect of social media that I've discovered. In the few times I post something that's truly meaningful to me, like, you know, if, if I post a photograph of a beautiful stairwell and the shadow playing across it that I happen to walk past, 20 likes here and there, I post a picture of my book, <laughs> my shiny, blingy book, <laughs> 3,000 likes, like within seconds. People want that bling. We are in a civilization that wants to aspire and to do better and to improve our situations in life. So we look towards those who are on the level above us in many ways. You know, I don't know if that's going to change anytime soon. Maybe it's the way our society is configured, or maybe it's the way Instagram's algorithms are configured. But I also think that this impulse, both to envy and to be enviable for all of us, is not as shallow as it appears. I mean, people are liking Kevin's blingy new book because they like Kevin. For better or for worse, a picture of you looking cute or showing off something you made or something you bought, more so than pictures of shadows on a staircase, is a signal that I am doing all right. In spite of everything, I am thriving. And so we need to really start to normalize Black women showing off their kids, you know, enjoying luxury, taking vacations, living the best life they can, because we need to normalize Black success, Black wealth, Black happiness, Black joy. Nana Ajamine is the CEO and founder of Every Stylish Girl and the former social media editor at The Cut. And we completely changed our tone on social media. She ran everything on our Instagram from March to July. As a Black woman, I was a huge advocate of always diversifying our feed and making sure we were as inclusive as possible. But now I thought, we're only going to amplify the voices of Black and Brown people at this point, right? Because Black lives matter. And that means Black success matters too. We didn't want to be grieving 24 hours of the day. We didn't want to be protesting 24 hours of the day. We also wanted our voices to be heard and to be recognized. And we really tried to amplify Black and Brown businesses, small businesses too, but not just share their stories and how they're feeling, but to talk about the progress and how their businesses are excelling and how they're selling out and how things are so great. And so when you think of the designer Telfar and how their bags quickly sold out, that was a great outcome that came out of the, the movement to amplify Black and brown voices right now. I got a kick out of seeing who got their hands on a Telfar bag before it sold out. Good for them. And I like to watch Tilda Swinton strut around in a couture gown. Good for her. And I like to hear that a friend bought a house or a dog. That's amazing. Don't get me wrong, I am envious. I want a Telfar bag so badly, and I want a lawn. But for the people I'm rooting for, the celebrities and the friends of mine, seeing them show off is oddly comforting. I'm envious, but I'm glad they're okay. And no, I don't really want to watch, like, Jeff Bezos living his best life, and I'm not really into the New York Times spreads of wealthy families retreating into their summer homes. But I do want to see some people on the up and up, making a way for themselves and doing well in the wicked world. Now that internet flexing is slowly coming back from its shameful place, 
I weirdly do like to see it. I think I like to see it. Or it might just be that the perpetual engine of consumption has been humming around me for so long that that envious feeling has become the air I breathe. Maybe I'm finding the fun in it. Or maybe I'm just finding it too hard to learn another way to be. B.A. Parker is our show's lead producer. Production and editorial support from Allison Berenger. This episode was engineered and scored by Gautam Shrikashin, who also composed original music. Additional composition by Ray Royal. And our theme music is by Brandon McFarland. Special thanks to Karinza Kadinas and Sangeeta Singh Kurtz, and especially Amelia Petrarca. Molly Young's zine is called The Things They Fancied, a zine about the sick and twisted hobbies of rich people throughout history. You can get copies at youngblanks.com. Stella Bugby and Nishat Kurwa are the show's executive producers. The Cut is made possible by the team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Avery Jeffelman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>